Okay, you guys, here we go. She Runs Ultras, episode number 63. And in this episode, we're going to talk all about my Tahoe 200 training thus far. And I'm answering your questions about my big scary goal, taking on the Tahoe 200. So about two weeks ago, I put up a post on Instagram asking you guys to submit questions about Tahoe 200, and I sort of wanted to know what you wanted to know about the race and the training, basically all of it, and I got lots of good questions that I'll get to here in a minute. But first things first, let's just talk about my training up to this point. And I guess I should recap as well for those of you guys that maybe aren't totally familiar with what I'm talking about, but in the beginning of October of 2021, I ran the Ghost Train 100, and that was my last race of that year. I didn't have anything more planned. And come to think of it, I actually entered the lottery for Tahoe 200 the night before Ghost Train. So I was literally up in the tent, in my rooftop tent, set up, ready to go, and I registered for the Tahoe 200 lottery to do this next like big scary thing that I had planned for the following year, right? So it's a little odd, but you know, it's very much my style. So I had to wait a little bit because it's a lottery. It's probably about two or so weeks later, maybe almost three, basically at the end of October, I found out that I was, that I got into Tahoe. And the way it happened was a little weird because apparently there was like a glitch not in the matrix, but in the system that they use to send out the acceptance letters, something to do with ultra sign up and some sort of glitch in their delivery system. And so I basically got an email back that was, that looked very similar to the confirmation email that I got when I registered for the waiting list, but you had to really like scroll through the email. And then the only other way that I really knew that I was in was I checked my credit card statement because in the fine print, when you sign up for the lottery, it's, it warns you that if you are accepted, that your card will be hit immediately. So that's how I knew I was in. (laughs) Basically I checked my credit card statement and saw that I was in at the Tahoe 200. So Um, that very night, I also learned that a former client and a friend of mine got in too. So I'm psyched about that because that just means there will be more friendly faces out there with me. So I'm, I'm super pumped about that. So after finding out that I got in, I have spent the last couple of months. Um, well, I should, I should say like, after I found out that I got in, I did spend November and a little bit of December sort of relaxing and recuperating, fully knowing that I was going to have to throw myself into Tahoe 200 training. And I wanted a little sort of, you know, downtime to just relax and hang out and do Thanksgiving and Christmas and just sort of not be stressed about everything all at once. So um, when the new year came rolling around, that's when I knew I was going to have to sort of flip the switch and get back into training mode. And so I did really enjoy my legitimate downtime before that. So here we are, it is basically the end of February and I am fully involved in training right now. For the month of January, my focus was really on just sort of ramping things back up. So that meant lots of walking, body weight strength training, and just essentially getting good at showing up consistently for my training sessions. Because that above all, you guys, is 
if I could teach you guys anything, it would be that showing up consistently and having intention behind your workouts, not just mindlessly going through the motions is the linchpin to achieving your running goals, like showing up consistently and having a, an intention for your workout and really paying attention to those things will pay back dividends year over year. Um, and I think it's worth noting as well, I've never done 200 miles before. I've talked about this on a previous podcast, but I don't know anything about running 200s, but I'm going to learn along the way. And it's a big learning curve. <laughs> it's a big learning curve. I've been doing a lot of reading, a lot of video watching on YouTube, just a lot of like sitting down and thinking about the process, what I'm good at, what I'm not so good at, what the, what, what are the gaps in my knowledge and experience that I'm going to have to sort of solve for or train throughout this process in order to get really good and proficient so that they are second nature and I don't really have to worry about them. So I've never done one before. I have never done 200. I've done 100 and a lot of the same principles apply to 200s, but it really is a completely different ball game to sort of mix metaphors here. So I'm doing, like I said, I'm doing my research. I'm talking to people. I've talked to a couple people that have done not only this race, but just 200s in general, and just trying to learn as much as I can about the distance. But the point that I want to make is I didn't know how to do this before I signed up to do this. And I think that's an important piece of the process to highlight because lots of people will wait for the quote unquote right time to do the thing, to, to even just sign up um, for an epic adventure like this. And that's not really how it works. I mean, you could, you could operate that way, but it's probably going to take you a lot longer to accomplish that goal if you sort of just wait for the right time versus flip it around and make it the right time and reshuffle things and make the decision to do it. The conditions are never going to be a hundred percent perfect. So you might as well just give it a shot now. That's basically what I have come to over the years having done this and, you know, just through other life experiences. So despite not knowing what the hell I'm doing, I am forging on (laughs) sort of just learning as I go. And like I said, these first two months have been about establishing the habit of working out, building a good base and ramping up slowly and methodically so that when it comes time for the really big stuff that I won't be overdoing it and setting myself up for burnout, overtraining or an injury. So you might be wondering, well, that's great, but what does it really look like? And right now, kind of on the, in the bigger picture, that means that I'm running three to four times a week definitely weather dependent around here right now. I'm walking at least two or three times a week. I'm riding my bike on the indoor trainer when typically when I can't run, I'm on the bike, but I'm also doing bike specific workouts as well because I have learned over the years that too many running workouts has a negative impact on my body. And so I've had to sort of learn what's the happy medium. What's the place, you know, where I can, what's that line of running where I can go right up to it and anything more is going to have a negative impact and anything less is really the sweet spot where I want to be. So that's where riding the bike comes into play and the walking. 
I'm strength training probably between two and three times a week, sometimes more, sometimes less, just depending on the week. But the whole focus is to, you know, just start building that base level of strength. And as always, every day I'm spending some time focusing on just my mobility and my joint health, making sure that everything is sort of up to snuff, so to speak. And all of that right now currently averages out to be, you know, anywhere between 10 and 13 hours of training across all the disciplines, sometimes more, sometimes less. And over time, that's going to ramp up, but it's not going to get to like a crazy, I know that term is relative, but it's not going to get to like a crazy level. It's just going to be distributed amongst different things. And it's going to look different than potentially training for a 50 K a 50 mile or even a hundred milers. So like I said, I still have a lot to learn. Um, but right now I'm just sort of taking it all in sort of building up the base and setting up that foundation, sort of getting other things in line too with my business and, you know, just in my sort of day-to-day life, like setting things up so that when I do have to do more training, that those things are taken care of and I don't have to necessarily pay as much attention to them or they sort of run on autopilot or they can just kind of sit there and I can come back to them when this whole thing, this whole thing is over. Um, I will say that the realization that I have come to even within like really within the last sort of 48 hours is that this is going to need to take a lot of focus and attention from me in order to accomplish. And I had some other goals this year that I was sort of layering on top of this and I've decided to hit pause on those for a little bit because I'm finding it too difficult to try to do all the things. And I will admit that this is really hard for me because I pride myself on being able to do lots and lots of things and do them very well. And the more I sat down to think about this and the more I started to really map out how many days I have left, which is as of today, Thursday, the day that I'm recording this podcast, I have 121 days left, including today. And I am fresh off a hill workout and my legs are jelly. So (laughs) I have 121 days left to get all my ducks in a row, to get all of this figured out. And I've decided that some of those other things that I was really hoping to accomplish this year, maybe they'll happen in the second half of the year, but right now my focus needs to be on this thing. Okay. So I just offer that because this one is really big. Like this is a big goal and it's going to take a lot of work. And I think if it were a 50K, I would feel differently. I know I would feel differently because I've done that before and I understand the scope of work. And I talk about this a lot sort of with my private clients and in my group coaching programs, but like understanding the scope of work is really, really important when it comes to ultra running. And when I talked about showing up consistently and having um, a purpose behind every workout, that's important, but also understanding the greater scope of work that's going to need to take place is also really important. And if you're sort of, if you're sort of, I don't know how to describe it. If you are 
aware of what you need to do, but you're almost sort of turning a blind eye to like half or even a quarter of it, you're not stepping back and looking at the full picture. And that's really what you have to do. Like everything from the training to how it's going to impact your day-to-day life and the people around you and, you know, all of the things that you need to learn and know and understand. And now I'm just rambling, but I think it's an important sort of topic to bring up, especially as you start to move from one distance to the next. And I will also say that I recently had another conversation with a friend who we were talking about what's the upper limit? What's the threshold? Not in terms of like heart rate or training threshold, but when you start to move up these distances, where does it end? And if you had asked me 10 years ago that I would have ever signed up to do 200 miles, I would have told you you were batshit crazy, that there was no way that I was going to do that. And yet here I am. And so I don't want to say that this will be my last, but at what point do I just, does it stop? Because in my mind, I can't, like, what am I going to do next? 500 miles? Like, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe I will like this. Maybe I won't. It does take a lot of time and I don't want ultra running to be my full-time occupation. I mean, I'm not a professional athlete. This is not how I pay the bills. So there's that to think about. But I also think that sometimes we put pressure on ourselves to keep going in terms of the distance, 50K, 50 miles, 100K, 100 miles, 200, 240, Moab 240, you could do the triple crown, like you could do all these things. But at what point is it enough for you personally? And when you reach that limit, it doesn't mean that you then have to stay there, right? So if I do 200 miles, when I do 200 miles, that doesn't mean that every race from here on out has to be 200 miles. I could very easily do this and just go back to doing 50 Ks all day. I mean, that is entirely a possibility. Like I could very easily go back to that because that scope of work is more palatable, but I am always wanting to push my boundaries. And so it's an interesting thought, you know, it's an interesting line of thinking, I, th- I, I think. What's the limit? Where does it end? Do you keep going? Do you pull back? And can you allow your identity as an ultra runner to be sort of fluid and not specifically tied to, I'm a 100-mile finisher? Every race from here on out has to be a 100-miler or I'm not worthy of the title of ultra runner. And... Yeah, I think I'll just leave it there. Anyway, because I'm like way off topic now because that's not what we signed up to talk about today. What we wanted to talk about was Tahoe 200. So, you know, my training right now is a mix of all of those things, including having a specific agenda for every workout. Like today I mentioned doing hill repeats, um, you know, still doing a lot of long, slow distance. And the, the tricky part, I think kind of where I was going with all of that is right now, the tricky part for me is the whole weather piece because I live in the Northeast. We still have snow. It's 45 degrees right now and stuff is melting, but at the same time next week, we're looking at more snow. And so the trails aren't really accessible. So I'm having to do, you know, dirt roads, paved roads, maybe a little bit of trail when it's clear. And I'm having to get real creative on this. And it's sort of ties back to this bigger question of the scope of work and what actually needs to be done. And so, you know, the overall themes are 
building my cardio, building my base, building my strength. And then when the time comes, then I can go and hammer some trail miles and really go back to building that skill of foot placement and cadence and all that stuff. But right now I have to set myself up for success. And that's essentially what my goal is by walking and running and riding my bike and strength training and doing all the mobility stuff so that when the time comes and I can get back on the trails that I can do that specific scope of work. So currently averaging, like I said, between 10 and 13 hours, and that'll sort of ramp up and it'll also pull back a little bit, you know, with the up down schedule of my training. Um, and sort of, as I go through this process, I'll keep you guys updated and try to find a way to sort of share what it is that I'm doing, maybe little snippets. Um, I'm, I'm obviously sharing. If you follow me on Instagram, I'm doing my daily countdown in my stories. So if you really want to see like on a micro level, what happens day to day, you can go over there at find your ultra and you can watch sort of what's going on in real time. So let's talk about some of the questions that we got from Instagram and these were amazing. So I'm going to answer them in no particular order here. Uh, starting with the very first question, which is, how are you prepping for upwards of 20 miles between aid stations? And this one actually comes from my friend, Ben, who is also doing Tahoe 200 with me, which is great. I'm so excited about this. So I was thinking about this and how I could answer this, and it would be the most helpful, not only to to Ben, but to me and everybody else. This race is different from your average ultra because of the location and the terrain. And many of these aid stations are spread out and will have big spans, like 20 miles or more in between them. And so this is like a very raw logistical question and logistical challenge. And my plan for this is to carry my hydration pack with a full bladder and take fluids at every aid station, regardless of whether I think I need them or not. Because, you know, for me, I live in the Northeast, like I just said, not very high above sea level. And the race is going to take place at a much higher elevation. So for me, I'm probably going to blow through a lot more fluids up there than I would down here. So my plan is to have my hydration pack fully loaded at all times, um, and carry some soft flasks, which isn't something that I have done before, but it will be something that I practice. And on top of that, I'm going to carry a little water filtration system so that if necessary, I can get additional fluid from you know, a spring or a lake or whatever I might come across if that's necessary. The question was really, how are you prepping for upwards of 20 miles between aid stations? And my mind first and foremost goes to fluid and food. So I'm also planning on carrying lots of extra calories in the form of bars and real food when I can and, you know, taking extra food from the aid stations because I'd rather have it and carry the extra however many, you know, ounces or pounds. And I'd I'd rather have it than not have it. So, you know, 20 miles in the grand scheme of things is not a long distance, but then if you're going through a particularly difficult section, it can be a long way. Okay. So really just thinking ahead 
And I think this is a bigger question too, because some of these aid stations you can have your crew at, and some of them there's no crew access. So essentially the first, I don't have the map in front of me. Um, I'm trying to recall from memory, which is not very good, but I think it's like at least the first 44 to 62 miles. And I know that's a big gap, but I'm just trying to recall what I have uh, from my memory here. You cannot have your crew access you unless they are volunteering at one of those aid stations. There's aid stations from which you can get all of these things, but your crew can't be there because of just logistical reasons, um, unless they're volunteering for a specific amount of time. So I'm currently sort of talking with my crew about, hey, do you guys think that you could volunteer at one of these aid stations so that I can at least just see you (laughs) for like a little bit within the first 50 miles of the course and have a bag of stuff just in case. But my plan is to be as self-sufficient as I can without needing my crew because there's potential that I could just miss them. Like we might not connect for whatever reason. So I want to be self-sufficient, but also making use of what the aid stations have to offer. Okay. So that's sort of my initial plan and how I'm going to prep for upwards of 20 miles between aid stations. So I'm curious, Ben, how are you? (laughs) What's Ben, I'm curious what your answer to this is. So we can sort of game plan it together. Um, The next question is a really good one. And it is, what can family and friends do to be supportive during the hours of training and the actual days of the race? Now, I have to admit, this one came from my husband. (laughs) This one came from Adam. And it's such a good question. Um, Because most people want to know about like the nitty gritty things like, oh, what are you going to train for? Like, how are you going to do this workout? And what gear are you going to take? And I love this question because it shows the flip side of everything everything that's going on, like what's actually happening external of the runner and how can family and friends be supportive and help. So I sort of broke it down into the two buckets during training and during the race. And there's lots of things that you could do to be, you could, you know, be supportive. But I think that being supportive is the thing that you can do. And it sounds weird for me to just be repeating the question back, but here I'll, I sort of break it down here. So my friend, Ben, actually, the one who asked the previous question made a great post about this the other day on Instagram. And he talked about people who are not runners and ultra running in general. And so what he alluded to was like, everyone has opinions about ultra running. And when you tell people, that you're doing this thing and that you're really excited and perhaps secretly or not so secretly terrified of it, you're going to get a lot of input and a lot of reactions. I think there are three different types of reactions or three different types of people that are going to show up. The first one is the person that is all in. They're willing to do anything to help. They're always there with full support. They are your biggest cheerleader and they have some, uh, they have some idea of what's involved in this mission. And if they don't, if they don't really understand, they're willing to watch and listen and learn. And they're just all in. They, they're supportive and they want to help you. The second kind of person is 
this, this person that they trust you, they trust that you've made a decision that's right for you, but they have some concerns. They have some, I have some concerns. And as such, they reserve the right to express their opinion and concerns on a regular basis. And it's going to look a little different for everybody. Sometimes more passive aggressive than anything else, but they're going to have concerns and they're, they might couch them under the idea that oh, I'm just concerned about you and want to make sure you're okay. But that's like the second kind of person. And then the third type of person is they just can't understand why you would ever run that far. And they're not afraid to tell you and anyone else who will listen all day, every day, how crazy they think you are. I personally have had all three in my life. And I can tell you from experience that I want person one all day, every day. I want the person that is all in and willing to do anything to help. Always there, full support. They're your biggest cheerleader. Even if they might have some internal doubt or fear or worry, they never express it. They're, they're there to watch and listen and learn and try to absorb what you're doing so that they can help you. Um, and I want that for a number of reasons, but I'll tell you specifically why here right now. So, and this is like sort of a personal rant, personal rant coming up here. Warning. Um, every ultra runner you meet has doubts about what they're going to do. And the last thing they need is for you or anyone in their immediate circle to be amplifying them. Even if it's couched under, well, I'm just, you know, this, I just worry. It's like, it's their worry. Okay. What you might not know is that we, the the runners, we spend many hours doing what I call working the problem, trying to figure out all the gaps in our knowledge and experience. We I talked about this at the very beginning of the episode. We're trying to figure out all these gaps in our knowledge and experience that we're going to have to overcome in order to accomplish the mission. So that means we spend an inordinate amount of time with our deepest, darkest fears. And that's not always the greatest place to be. We spend lots of time thinking about how good or not good we are at something and trying to come up with ways to get better. And we spend lots and lots of time being uncomfortable for the sake of building up a tolerance to it so that when race day comes around, we will be prepared. So we don't have time or energy or the mental bandwidth to be dealing with or debating anybody about why we're crazy enough to want to run insert race mileage here, right? So be supportive. Ask how their training is going. Ask if there's something that you can do with them or for them. If you know they just went for a long run, ask to see if they want you to fix them a snack. Um, for them, you to fix them a snack. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, how, like walk the dog for them unless they want the extra steps. Like, I don't know, just like ask them, like, is there something that I can do for you? Like, how did your run go? How's your training going? Is there anything that I can do to help you? I think just being supportive is going to be the most helpful. And, you know, I'm just trying to think of how, like how to expand on this because I know be supportive is such a simple answer, but it really just comes down to taking an interest, a positive interest and being their cheerleader and just trying to do everything that you can to support them. So the second part of that question was during the race. And I think that I'm sort of going to speak about this 
from the position that this person is going to be at the race um, because that's sort of the position of the person that asked the question. (laughs) Um, But my number one thing, if you're going to be at the race and you're going to like witness what's going on, especially when it comes to ultra running, and you see this sometimes at the shorter distance races too, but it I feel like it gets amplified as we sort of build up in distance. And this this thing is, don't take anything personally. There just comes a certain point during an ultra race where we, the runners, are no longer ourselves. <laughs> Elvis has left the building, okay? Like, and that point, we can come and go out of these things, right? So that point varies for everyone, but it's going to happen. There are highs and lows throughout a training and an ultra. And the longer the race goes on, the more physically, mentally, and emotionally tired we're going to get. We might snap or say or do something that we would never in a million years do in our day-to-day lives. And my recommendation is that the best thing that you can do is not to take it personally. So, you know, we're not attacking you personally. We are most likely frustrated with ourselves as the runners. And internally, we're trying to, like, I have a very vivid memory from Ghost Train last year of snapping at Adam. And I wasn't angry or frustrated with him. I was trying to get my shit together in order to keep going And quite frankly, I wasn't really thinking clearly and I was frustrated with myself. And so I want to just put that out there because I feel like if you've never been in this position, it would be hard for you to understand the rationale behind this. Like that specific instance, I was in the tent between laps. Adam had made me some ramen. I was trying to like get down on the ground, get my legs up but also deal with my feet. I had this horrible blister. I've talked about it a little bit where I ended up losing my toenail and having just the biggest blister I've ever had, probably in like all my years of running. And I was just so frustrated. I felt like my synapses weren't firing and I was just frustrated. I I don't remember what I said, (laughs) probably a good thing, but I know that I snapped at him and I felt bad about it instantly in the moment and I apologized. Um, But he and I sort of have this understanding that we're not going to take anything personally. Like we're sort of doing a job and like this happens and it's not, it's not anything personal. So if you're there during the race, definitely don't take anything personally. Um, but also, you know, sort of if you haven't been involved in the pre-race discussion about what role you can take, sort of hang back a little bit and wait for someone to tell you what to do and, or ask specifically, what can I do? I would suggest not jumping in and inserting yourself if you haven't been apprised of the plan because, you know, sometimes there's a discussion like, okay, I'm going to hand you, Adam, my hydration pack. And Adam knows that he needs to refill my water, put the tailwind in and check all the pockets. And if you just insert yourself and you take the pack and do it without asking, being told what to do or asking for direction, and you just take it of your own accord, unless you really know what that person needs, that could end up being a problem because they might need I don't know, like an extra jacket or something to go in there. And if that doesn't happen, and then they're going out on a 
span of more than 20 miles and they don't have that thing, that's a problem. So, I mean, there's tons of different examples of how you could um, be supportive during the race, but I think don't take anything personally if you're there. And if you want to help, if you feel compelled to help, ask or just sort of hang back and watch how things go and, you know, wait for someone to tell you what to do. And that will happen. Someone will say, take this, bring it over there, you know, that, that sort of thing. And you just got to be willing to do it. Okay. That was a good question. The next question comes from Don, my good buddy, Don. Um, will you listen to anything while you're doing the race, music, podcasts, audiobooks, etc.? I fully expect that I will listen to some stuff on and off throughout the race because it's a long race. <laughs> and that's typically what I do in my training. So there are times that I am always listening to something and other times that I would just prefer to be quiet. And so I expect that to be exactly the same during the race. Um, I can't say when I'm going to want it, but I plan to have uh, a lot of music downloaded, some podcast episodes, maybe an audiobook. Um, with that said, if you guys have recommendations for audiobooks or podcasts, I'm all ears. I particularly like podcasts that tell stories like crime mysteries, which I will not be listening to in the dark by myself, um, or historical stuff like things that happened in the past. So I'm all ears. If you have suggestions, email them to me or DM me on Instagram. Next question, also from Don. Do you ever find yourself physically able to continue in a race, but your brain is telling you to stop? How do you overcome that? I had to really think about this one because I've had times where I'm just over it and want to stop from like being bored, but I don't think I've ever gotten to the place where my brain just says, a hundred percent stop, just stop. I'm fully anticipating that that's going to happen at Tahoe, both physically and mentally. So one of my strategies to overcome this will be to have pacers and or find new trail friends along the way, because like I said before, there's going to be highs and lows and everything in between. And part of the like ultra process is learning to ride the wave. We've talked about this over the course of the last 62 episodes, but, um, riding the wave, nothing is permanent. Like no matter what's happening right now, the situation's going to change. It's not always going to get worse. And so if you can sort of just find a way, this is very cliche, but to just put one foot in front of the other and keep going, stuff is going to sort itself out and things will, you know, get better. So having friends, having things to listen to, you know, just seeing the sites, taking pictures, because I anticipate there's going to be a lot to look at, will help me to just shift the focus in my brain and not be so, you know, internal, try to like go external. And also I think like just having, like having the realization and reminding myself that I don't have the luxury of stopping (laughs) in the middle of the wilderness. Like I can't quite stop here. I'm going to have to at least get myself to the next aid station will be helpful motivation. And then having someone to push me out of said aid station is also going to be super helpful. (laughs) So, um, the next question comes from my friend, Christine, what are your tips and tricks for keeping your mind from wandering into the dark places when tired and perhaps alone? So this is a good one. We sort of like piggyback these two questions. 
I will say first and foremost, I'm not a fan of being alone in the dark. So I'm going to try to avoid this at all cost. Uh, my pacing strategy is to have someone with me overnight so that I don't have to be alone. So we're really, I'm, I and my pacers, we are very focused on that because I don't really want to be alone. Um, but at the same time, I've been trying to acclimate myself to being alone in the dark on my early morning walks and runs in anticipation of being alone in the dark at Tahoe 200. Like I just don't want to be in that position for the first time in a new place where I don't know anybody and I'm without my pacer. I'm without, you know, the people I know, like, and trust. And so I want to sort of microdose myself to that now and get comfortable with just being in the dark and being alone. And then, you know, I can sort of layer on the Tahoe 200 element later on. I get the most nervous and afraid when I really stop to think about it. So I try to keep my mind busy. Um, you know, any of these mornings that I've been out by myself, a lot of times I, I'm not listening to anything or I don't have music or anything. Um, but sometimes if I really sort of get into my head and I start to think I saw something or think I hear something, I just take the element away and I just put in a, in a, my earbuds for a couple minutes and just listen to something. And that sort of shifts my brain, takes me off that topic and gives me another sort of like mental puzzle to figure out, right? Like, oh, what's this podcast episode about? Or, oh, I'm going to jam out to this song and I don't have to stay there too long. Um, The flip side of that is actually exploring the dark place versus trying to stay out of it entirely is something that I'm interested in trying both in training and during the race. The kicker for that is during the race, I will want to have somebody with me to sort of keep me from going too deep into the darkness. But I think there's actually a lot to be gained by sort of digging in and sort of rooting around in the darkness, in the pain cave maybe, and seeing what's in there and what you could overcome, uh, from that place. So I think it's just a given. It's It's like the nature of the beast that I'm going to end up in that place more than once. So my goal is to just sort of embrace it and ride the wave versus trying to avoid it at all cost. It's a good question though, Christine. Thank you for asking it. Uh, Another one from Christine, what are some of your quote unquote, I wish someone told me this about running an ultra. And this is a good one. And I touched on this a little bit at the beginning of the podcast, but I think I wish someone would have told me that when you start doing ultras, it's possible that you're going to feel compelled to keep progressing in distance. And at some point, you'll wonder if it's sustainable slash what the hell do I do next? (laughs) I think way back when I started, it was just, can I run a 50K? And now I'm sort of at this place where I'm like, where, what the hell do I do next? Like, where does it go from here? And so... (laughs) I think, again, like this isn't like a fully fleshed out thought yet. I've been trying to spend a little bit more time thinking about this while I'm out running, ironically, (laughs) or not so ironically. But I think it's an interesting idea. Like, 
I wish that someone had told me at the beginning that you're going to feel compelled to keep going up to a certain point and we won't know what that certain point is until you get there. And when you get there, how are you going to feel about going back down or stopping or shifting and or like doing something different? And I'm always a big fan of thinking ahead of time and thinking on purpose. So thinking about these things before I encounter them, because I don't know that I've hit my limit just yet, but I wish that someone had brought this to my attention earlier. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's so many other things though that like you could go into here. Like I wish someone told me about how much gear I would need. I wish someone would have told me how much fun this is. I wish someone would have told me, I mean, we could go on and on and on, but this, this one is top of mind right now because this is the, this is where I'm sort of rubbing up against, uh, my personal limits. So good question. So Judy wants to know, do you plan to sleep or just keep going the whole time? Hell yes, Judy, I am going to sleep. <laughs> My plan is to sleep. I have talked to a couple people about this, but I don't have necessarily a formal sleep plan, meaning I'm going to sleep at X, like I'm going to sleep from 10 to midnight or whatever. But I think what I'm going to try and do is be flexible about this. But what I would really like to do is sleep for a few hours each night and try to wake up with the sun so that it simulates a really good night's rest. I mean, that's my goal. I don't, I would prefer to do that, but I don't know if that's going to happen. So I, like I said, I have to sort of be flexible and I don't know if that's going to happen on the trail, like literally pull up a pine bough and lay down and have some rest or at an aid station, like within an aid station in the car or at a sleep station, which is a thing at this race. Um, and that's just going to be determined by my pace and my location on the course when I really start to hit the wall. And, you know, that's where I'm going to like rely on my pacers and my crew to help me sort of make that decision. But I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to sleep. I mean, this is 200 miles. I have a hundred hours to do it in the longest I've, um, gone without sleep is like 36 hours, maybe 38 hours. I'm not hundred percent sure, but yeah, a, a long time. So I, there's no way I could make it a hundred hours without sleep. And I, that's just not feasible for me. And I don't think it's a good strategy. I have, there's a lot of time. There's a lot of time and simultaneously not a lot of time. So it's just going to come down to, can I take some strategic cat naps in order to make sure that I'm getting some rest and staying on track on pace? Connie wants to know, uh, what will be your longest training run? So this is a good question because I'm currently trying to figure this out. Right now, the plan is to do some long back-to-back fast packing days. So probably something upwards of 30 or 40 miles on back-to-back days. So 31 day, 40 another, or vice versa to just sort of do what I would call a race simulation, even though I'm not going to get anywhere near the full distance, but use it as an opportunity to test all the gear in a race-like situation. So that's the plan. Somewhere 30 or 40 miles on back-to-back days so that we can just start to see what that's going to be like. And, you know, this conversation has come up in run your first 50 K 
about going the distance before you go the distance. And, you know, that's easier said than done for this. It is most definitely easier on shorter distance races. So, you know, with a lot of like 50K training, you'll get right up close to 50K, but not exactly. That's not the case here, right? I mean, I've gone 100 miles and I know what that feels like. And I know... I have thought to myself, especially at the end of the last ghost train, okay, what if I had to turn around and do it all over again, which is essentially what I will be doing at Tahoe. And the thought didn't completely terrify me, but I was worried. So yeah. So I guess my point is I've done a hundred miles. I know what that feels like. And for this, my strategy is going to be make sure that I get you know, all the mileage in that I need during my training and the longest ones will be somewhere 30 or 40, maybe 50, um, in order to make sure that my plan is solid in terms of gear and that my body is up to snuff. Uh, and the last question comes from D she wants to know, aside from getting used to running on tired legs and hiking the day after the previous run, how many times a week should you strength train legs? Uh, I think this varies for everybody because it's kind of a larger picture of what are you doing in terms of, you know, your, your overall training, but you could do legs two times a week. You could do legs three times a week. I'm actively doing legs probably three times a week and it's not like an hour long session. I'm doing, you know, 15 to 30 minutes of legs three times a week. Like today I just did my hill repeats and then I came back and did about 20 minutes worth of lunges and bridges and just experimenting with some different things to try to build up my leg strength because, um, I've noticed that my left side is weaker than my right. And so I want to try to bridge that gap. Um, And so that's sort of like an example of knowing the scope of work and starting to really drill down on the things that need to be done to be sure that you are in the best shape possible, that you show up in the best shape possible to take on this challenge. So that's it for questions, you guys. Uh, I'm sure this probably sparked other questions for you or different thoughts or things that you might want to know about Tahoe 200. So don't stop here. Keep sending me your questions because it's I'm going to do more training updates. My goal is to do one about every month so that you can sort of follow along. But like I said, if you want to follow along in real time, you can watch my Instagram stories. So at find your ultra every day, I do the countdown. Like I said, today is Thursday as I'm recording this. So it's day 121. I have 121 days left. I'm counting down. So you can just sort of see how I'm attacking, um, attacking this thing. So thanks for tuning in, you guys. I hope you found this helpful. Make sure you're following me over at find your ultra. If you are interested in, um, what I'm doing, that's the best place to follow along. And as always enjoy this beat and I'll see you all soon.